Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Dr. Scott Atlas, the David and Joan Traytel Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Cleaning Up the Post-Obamacare Mess, Restoring Quality Healthcare at Lower Cost. And it was recorded on April 18th, 2016. What I'll do in the next uh, maybe 30 minutes, then we'll have time for questions, hopefully, is go through very briefly what we had before Obamacare. And I'm going to use the terms Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and the ACA as synonyms. And then I'm going to go through my uh, ideas for a detailed reform proposal that are in the book that Sarah just mentioned that is out there. for the purposes of uh, going through the, the reforms, but also to make sure everyone understands that there actually are detailed proposals out there. And uh, I'm confident that, depending on the election, there will be detailed reforms. Uh, I'm not confident on the outcome of the election, but that's a separate story. I want to start out by this, uh, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Senator Moynihan. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. And speaking of facts, I'm going to go through what was put forth as the basis of Obamacare. Uh, In spite of this very uh, strange contradiction that I've shown many times here before, and that multiple studies have shown over the years, the vast majority of Americans are highly satisfied with their own personal health care. Yet the same large majority buys into and says this idea that the healthcare system needs, quote, fundamental change or complete rebuilding. Now, it is true, uh, and as you'll see, I'm going to show a lot of facts. So I, I can't go very, very slow or I'll never get through, but most of this is in the book. The total health expenditures of the United States are way out of line with every other developed country, and that is on the basis of either per capita or percent GDP. The question isn't, are we spending a lot of money? The question is, what are we getting for that money, and how do we improve or optimize what we get? The underpinnings that gave this kind of pseudo-factual narrative to the need for Obamacare was initially this World Health Report uh, in the year 2000 that compared 191 countries' healthcare systems and tried to rank them. <clears throat> and you'll see from the ranking here that I've shown on the slide that the United States was uh, in the uh, midst of the paradigms of healthcare like Costa Rica, Slovenia, Cuba, Croatia, and far behind places like Italy, uh, France and others, and so the first reaction to this should be, there may be something wrong with the ranking system. And here is what's wrong with the ranking system that has been thoroughly vilified now in the academic literature, but still is used by many in the current administration as fact. Two-thirds of the ranking was based on equality, not quality. Therefore, if a system had half the people got A-level care, half the people got B-level care, that was worse than if all the people got B-level care. That's how the ranking was done. And there were other problems, including not just subjective inputs and assumptions made about their relative importance, but when data was missing from countries, the researchers filled in what they thought should be the answer. Huge measurement errors were made with no statistical significance in their difference, uh, and 
yet they were still ranked, and many of the most important inputs have nothing to do with healthcare quality. I'm just going to briefly highlight a couple. You don't have to be a statistician to understand if those black horizontal lines at the top and bottom of each bar are the error measurement, then all of these measurements are essentially the same, yet they were still put in as if they were rankable. You also need to know that there were so many factors that are glibly talked about as reflecting healthcare system quality, and they have nothing to do with healthcare or very little to do with healthcare. And one, surprisingly, is life expectancy, because as you can see, this is an impartial, a partial list of the factors that go into what affects life expectancy, lifestyle decisions, population heterogeneity, societal conditions, cultural differences, medical standard differences. All of these things affect life expectancy. It's not a good indicator of quality of healthcare per se. And we know it's not a good indicator in a shocking demonstration of that from the researchers in Iowa who took this quote that the U.S. ranks 42nd in the world in life expectancy, and among the OECD nations, you see that the United States is at the bottom or near the bottom. These are the economically developed countries. When they standardized all the countries for immediate death rates due to gunshot wound to the head or high-speed motor vehicle accident, where medical care has nothing to do with your outcome, instant death, if they standardized the countries for that, the life expectancy of the United States was number one. So the, the statistic is very, very misleading. Similarly, infant mortality. The U.S. has very high infant mortality rates compared to countries that we would view as somewhat similar. Yet when you look at why that is, well, there's big differences in the way the U.S. calculates live births. We count all births. You would think that would be for everywhere. But in Western Europe and Asia, they don't count births until the baby survives anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. They don't count births of the highest risk premature infants. They don't count births of babies who are born and then die five minutes later. We count every birth. We have full court press for every high risk baby here. And this kind of terminology has led to a huge difference in the statistic. In fact, when you just standardize between the U.S. and Sweden for the gestational age, meaning get ridding of, get, getting rid of prematurity, you see that the U.S. infant mortality comes down to almost equal Sweden just from the one adjustment, one standardization. The World Health Report has been completely delegitimized in the academic literature, although it's still part of the narrative of people like our president. In fact, the OECD head of health said health analysts don't like to talk about this report in polite company. It's one of those things we wish would go away. This is a liberal group, by the way. The facts are that the American healthcare system pre-Obamacare was superior to every other system in the world. And that means best survivals from cancer, best access to treatment and outcomes from chronic diseases, best access to screening tests, best access to newer drugs and safer, more accurate diagnostic technology, quickest access to life-changing surgeries, fastest access to specialists, and the source of the world's leading innovation. These are the facts. They're in my previous book that many of you have seen. Just a couple of highlights when you look at the five-year cancer survival rates of U.S. versus Western Europe, the countries with the systems held up as paradigms for our system to move to, the U.S. has a statistically better difference, and not just overall, but in every single cancer. What about access to treatment? 
Okay, for chronic disease, we'll take hypertension, high blood pressure as the example. Uh, the U.S. has a 53% of people who have been diagnosed with high blood pressure get treatment. And you would think that isn't so good. In fact, our friends at the New York Times said it is shocking evidence of how complicated and our dysfunctional healthcare system is. They didn't bother to look at the other countries that they put forward as having better systems because whether it's England, Sweden, Germany, Spain, Italy, and Canada, we dwarf their success in terms of access to treatment. What about outcomes for chronic disease? Something simple like high blood pressure. Successful control of high blood pressure, depending on what metric you use, significantly better in the U.S. than all of the other countries. In fact, the OECD said quite clearly the U.S. has the most diagnosed high blood pressure and also the fewest people with measured high blood pressure because of the aggressive use of drugs. That's called better medical care. What about screening tests? You would think that a country with a government-controlled system could at least deliver screening higher than our so-called horrible medical system, yet when you compare the U.S. to Canada in access to mammogram, pap smear, PSA, colonoscopy, sigmoidoscopy, we are better than a government-controlled system. By virtually every measure, the vast majority of innovation in healthcare comes from the U.S. system for the world. First launches of new cancer drugs, we dwarf every one of those other countries. Use of safer, minimally invasive treatments, we, we beat every country in the G7. The list of the most important recent medical ovations, according to the thought leaders in the world, you'll look and see that the USA is in red here, the inventor or co-inventor of almost every single one. The problem is that there's another fact, and that is that if nothing changes, by 2049, there will be no money left out of the federal budget for anything other than health care and Social Security. No national defense money, no interest on the debt, nothing. So we know there's a need for reform, and the reform that was put in place was called Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, which did four things. It imposed new mandates on individuals and businesses to buy uh, health insurance or pay a fine. It hyper-regulated all private insurance, first on the so-called insurance exchanges, but uh, basically all of them, and did a lot of things in the regulatory environment to those private insurance policies. It increased significantly the government's role as the direct insurer, as I'll show you. And when you are the insurer, you are the arbiter of access to care. And it introduced massive new taxes. And I'm going to go through some of the details of this. This is the two basic points of Obamacare spending. And this is the most recent chart from last month's CBO document, which shows that over the next decade, the expenditures for Obamacare are just under $2 trillion for the two things that, that the money goes to. It covers uh, subsidized private insurance and a massive expansion of Medicaid. Now the question is, is Obamacare working? And we hear in, in uh, the media and we read and we look at the talk shows on Sunday and we just, they're insisting Obamacare is working with headlines like this and like this. Some 11 million Americans have enrolled in Obamacare. This is touted as a success. And when you look at the percent of uninsured in the United States, it has significantly decreased in their definition of uninsured down to this is fourth quarter of 2015. We must know one thing first right off the bat. A 
up to 90%, and I say 65 to 90% because it's difficult to get the answers here. The data is uh, very difficult to tweeze out. 65 to 90% of all the newly insured under the Affordable Care Act are simply enrolled into Medicaid. Okay, and I'm going to show you why that's bad. The second touted success is that the healthcare expenditures actually slowed, and this is from David Cutler, one of the economists who admittedly, he says, was the senior healthcare advisor to Obama's 2008 campaign, slowing of costs, and they pointed to this, uh, that at the tail end of the curve on the top here, the US uh, rate of increase in health spending significantly decreased or, or stopped growing. They didn't bother to mention that every other country in the developed world had the same impact. So unless you think that Obamacare affected the health care costs of Japan, New Zealand, Sweden, Norway, and UK, and all the other places, you know, the, to say that it's due to Obamacare is a little bit odd. And in fact, the OECD said specifically, since the start of the financial and economic crisis in 08, the growth in health spending slowed markedly in almost every single OECD country. And in fact, we see that in, in the US, the growth in national health expenditures over time, this is from 1990 out to uh, after 2011, every time there's a recession, there is a drop in the national health expenditure growth rate. There's no reason to think it was from Obamacare. Why reform U.S. healthcare? Because we're left with, I'm saying that the U.S. healthcare system is actually very good. Why would we reform it? Number one, the public plans are already unsustainable and they are failures, and I'm going to show you that. Number two, the demographic realities of the aging population and the burden of risk factors for Americans implies that the future disease burden will overwhelm our system unless something is changed. Three, we are increase, increasingly developing a two-tiered system that not only wastes massive amount of money but threatens the health of poor and elderly Americans. And fourth, and most importantly, the completely wrong incentives are in place, and they've been in place for decades, both economic and health-related, and the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately and unwisely, doubled down on that path rather than change things. This is the book that I'm now going to go through, and then I'll have time for questions. There are basically six principal reforms. The reforms I'm proposing are integrated. It's system-wide. It includes private insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, and they all feed upon each other to not only improve access, but actually bring down the cost of care. The first reform centers on expanding affordable private insurance. You must understand that private insurance, not government insurance, gives you access to a wide array of doctors and hospitals. What Obamacare did was immediately shift coverage toward government insurance, and you see from this not just from demographics, but from the regulations and the laws of itself, that in the first five years, there was a significant increase, 25.8% increase in the government-insured population versus an 8.7% increase projected uh, in private insurance. And that's a problem, not just because you don't want the government to be a monolithic arbiter of access to care, which is critical, but there's other reasons, including that there's a cost shift. It makes private insurance more expensive, and that's because there's a big difference, and in fact, the biggest difference in decades between the payments from private insurance versus these artificially low underpayments from government insurance, 
that are transferred to premiums of people with private insurance to the tune of almost $2,000 a year from this cost shift. This is the cost shift, not a cost shift from uninsured, a cost shift from government insurance. The ACA also impacted directly private insurance coverage by not only taking away 5 million Americans chosen private insurance because of the, the required uh, lists of things that the Obamacare uh, required of private insurance, but also the projection is that 10 million Americans will be forced off their employer-based private insurance that they chose 10 times more than was projected to sell the idea of this plan. Obamacare promised to decrease the cost of health care. In fact, it didn't. Here's the cost of insurance, which actually reflects only two things, the cost of medical care itself and the regulatory environment for insurance. And what we see is that after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, every type of health insurance plan went up, HMO, PPO, high deductible plans, but even worse, there was a specifically detrimental impact on the premiums of high deductible plans. What were the cheapest plans? And the cheapest plans are not, as Secretary Sebelius said, bad coverage. There's a lot of reasons why high deductible plans are good, and I'm one of the people who actually bought a high deductible plan, and I'll go through why it's good. Uh, but Obamacare regulations actually increased the premiums to people choosing high deductible plans more than any other type of policy. The average U.S. county in 2014 alone saw a rate increase of 49% of private insurance. This is by a plan that was touted to bring down the cost. In 2016, these are just a smattering of states that show that the rate increase for this year is going to be between 20 and 50% or more in some states. In fact, in Oregon, they were quoted as saying the rate increases will be bigger in 2016 than they have been for years and years and will have a profound effect on consumers. Some may start wondering if insurance is affordable or if it's worth the money. Absolutely. Obamacare is wiping out private insurance. The access to doctors and hospitals is now reduced. Uh, there, there used to be a percentage of plans that were narrow or ultra-narrow in the networks of doctors or hospitals that accepted them. And now that has more than doubled from the regulations on the insurance exchanges. Cancer care is just one example, one of the jewels of American health care. The vast majority of the top cancer hospitals are excluded from the Obamacare exchanges. You may buy insurance, but you're not gonna be able to go, you're not gonna be covered for MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, Mayo. It's in the fine print. Why would I say high deductible limited mandate plans are good? And what I mean by limited mandate is getting rid of the sum of the more than 2,200 mandates for coverage. I bet there's a lot of people in this room that don't want and don't even realize that they're forced to buy insurance that covers things like massage therapy, marriage therapy, in vitro fertilization, acupuncture, and chiropractors. Okay? Those things add 20 to 50% to the cost of your health insurance. High deductibles, first of all, restore the true purpose of health insurance. Health insurance has become kind of perverted over the years to cover everything, as if homeowner's insurance would cover when you need a new light bulb. 
Insurance is supposed to reduce the financial risk of large, unanticipated medical expenses. I just said bloated coverage with excess mandates and low deductibles increases the cost of insurance and actually causes people to have an incentive to buy more and more health care. In high deductible plans, the facts show that the spending per year decreases 15% without deleterious impact. And in high deductible plans, more than a third of the savings are due to people actually comparing prices. This, these are facts. This is not just uh, my guess here. Americans actually opt for lower cost high deductible plans when they're available. Maybe they should have a say in what's available. What do voters think in surveys asking these specific questions? Should individuals have a right to choose between plans that cost more and cover everything versus plans that cost less while covering only major medical procedures? There's not many surveys that show such overwhelming support for anything. Same thing here. Should you have a right to choose high deductible plans? 85% of people say yes. These are the details of my reform number one. I'm not going to go through all these just to, just to show uh, that there are actually details here. I'm saying permit all insurers, every insurer, every state, to offer true high deductible limited mandate plans to transfer ownership of coverage to individuals and get rid of this linkage to employers to get rid of some of the harmful regulations of Obamacare, including some of these uh, artificial uh, age-based premium constraints and eliminate something that is called the health insurance premium excise task. The second reform, establish and markedly liberalize universal health savings accounts. Why expand health savings accounts? Because health savings accounts reduce the cost of health care. In fact, they almost double in some cases, but at 50% to double the savings of high deductible plans alone. It saves a massive amount of money. People with HSAs use wellness programs and, and actually improve their health. They don't just use programs, they use programs and actually have better health. I'm talking about people with chronic diseases. And HSAs are actually better tax incentives than making health expenses deductible because instead of simply incentivizing healthcare spending relative to other spending, which is what deductibility does, health savings accounts also incentivize saving, and you keep the money. Lastly, why expand health savings accounts? Because Americans want health savings accounts. Here's the numbers of a massive explosion of people enrolling into health savings accounts over the past seven years since they were introduced. In fact, there's a record high of 14.5 million health savings accounts as of uh, mid last year. And by the end of 2017, HSAs will have $46 billion in assets in almost 25 million accounts of Americans. What do I mean by markedly liberalize? I mean open HSAs, first of all, automatically. Everyone has an HSA. Not funded, but they have an HSA. Secondly, uh, I eliminate the requirement for having a high deductible plan. Everybody should be able to have an HSA. There's no problem with that. It's your money. We want people to use them because you shop around and have better health outcomes, and that's the whole point. I'm raising the contribution maximums to double what they currently are, easing limits on employer-provided financial incentives, allowing people to uh, pass on their HSAs tax-free, uh, and permitting broader uses. Three, instill appropriate incentives with the rational tax treatment of health spending. The current tax treatment of health spending is 
an accident of history, as many people know here. Uh, but basically, here's some numbers. More than $250 billion per year is from the federal income exclusion alone. It's highly regressive. 85% of that tax benefit goes to the top half of income earners. It encourages more spending. It encourages more demand for care artificially. In fact, it replaces take-home wages. These benefits are not free. Everybody here knows it, but you'd be surprised how many people don't. And in fact, the current tax treatment of health spending has partly caused the distortion of health insurance that basically removed any value-based consideration for buying medical care. Because if everything is paid by your insurance policy, you think, quote, someone else is paying, you don't care what it costs. Here's what I'm doing, making health treatment uh, universal in, its, uh, in the tax treatment, no matter whether you're self-employed or large employer or unemployed, allowing uh, tax exclusions for only two categories of expenses. And this is a big difference from today. What I call limited mandate catastrophic insurance premiums and HSA contributions. I see no reason why taxpayers would subsidize people buying bloated coverage of health insurance. I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to buy it. You, you can buy it. But why would I have to pay it by giving you some kind of tax deduction? Um, I'll move on. Reform number four, modernizing Medicare. Medicare is an antiquated program. In fact, I have a piece that is in submission called The Myth of Medicare Excellence. Why do I say it's a myth? Well, first of all, Medicare is unsustainable. Even if it was good, it's completely financially unsustainable. Uh, basically, it's by 2030, the trust fund, the hospitalization uh, trust fund is going to be zero. The demographics are dramatically shifting. And yellow here is patients, uh, people over 65 over the next 25, 35 years. And look at the, the yellow on this graph as people over 85. There's a dramatic increase in the demographic category of the elderly. Age is a predictor of health care use. We know this is true because the older you are, the more likely you are going to have the diseases that require technology and drugs. And one of those diseases that's coming down the pike is Alzheimer's. And this is a projection. Of course, they're not ever perfectly accurate, of course. But we know from this graph that more than triple the number of people with Alzheimer's today will be present in 2050. And that's relevant beyond all the catastrophes of personal life, the money, $1.1 trillion in care to be costing in the United States for that population by 2050. That is coupled with this demographic. When Medicare came out, there were 4.6 workers paying for the program per beneficiary. It's about half now and decreasing. Medicare is unsustainable. It must be changed. There's another problem with Medicare that gets no attention, and that is that doctors are starting to not accept new Medicare patients. You have this bolus of people coming to take to enroll into Medicare, and doctors are not going to keep accepting them. In fact, already 20% of primary care doctors in 2008 did not accept any new Medicare patients. And we now know that over half of doctors have already limited the access that Medicare patients have to their practices or plan to do so very shortly. There is one thing that Medicare is very good at, and that is rejecting claims. They're the highest rate compared to any of the 
comparable private insurers almost every year in rejection of claims. These are the same companies that are vilified in the press as being evil private insurers. It's Medicare that rejects more claims. And there's something else. Medicare is basically undecipherable. I don't know, I mean, I'm sure most of the people in the room here, maybe you're a lot smarter than I am, but Medicare is very difficult to figure out. In fact, it's so difficult that Medicare now processing 4.9 million claims per day has about $60 billion a year in errors, fraud, and waste. The program is really not what people think it is. Modernizing Medicare to me means allowing people to buy private insurance with a benefit called a fixed benefit. You give somebody money based upon a, uh, an average of acceptable uh, insurance that people are, the companies have bid in, there's a money amount calculated, and you get that money and you choose to spend it on any insurance plan you want. If you choose to buy insurance that's cheaper than that uh, index, you keep the money and it goes into your HSA. If you buy an insurance plan that's more expensive, you pay for it. I'm combining all parts of Medicare, part A, part B, part D, to simplify deductibles and payments. I'm establishing expanded HSAs for every Medicare enrollee. Right now, they're basically not allowed in Medicare. There's some complex uh, exceptions to that. Why would a Medicare patient need an HSA? Because the life expectancy now, once you reach age 65, is 85 and increasing. Medicare enrollees need to save for decades, not years, of insurance, of healthcare expenditures. The uh, life expectancy has actually increased by five years since the program started, and the age of retirement has increased by five years since the 1990s. Therefore, I'm also slowly increasing the age of eligibility, gradually phasing it in up to age 70 in my, uh, my proposal. Other people propose different things. Overhaul Medicaid and get rid of the two-tiered system that we have right now, this unconscionable system for poor people. While Obama celebrates expanding Medicaid, giving people Medicaid is not the same as giving them access to doctors. Just because you label someone as insured means nothing. We look at the percent of doctors accepting new Medicaid patients. Less than half of doctors accept Medicaid. 54% do not accept new Medicaid patients. And when you look at those who do take Medicaid, this is data from the Health and Human Services own publication that I dug out. Of the doctors who have, and who have signed contracts to accept new Medicaid patients, 56% of those do not in primary care. They do not accept new patients. And 43% of specialists are not available for new patients. These are the doctors who have already signed up to take new patients. There's another reason why expanding Medicaid is ludicrous. We know from the data, Medicaid does not improve health beyond having zero insurance. Isn't the point to not label someone as having insurance, but to actually help their health? When we look at closer at the medical literature, these are studies I dug out from the major medical journals, Annals of Surgery, Cancer, American Journal of Cardiology, 
Journal of Heart and Lung Transplant. Medicare has worse, I mean Medicaid has worse outcomes than private insurance for deaths, longer hospitalizations, re-hospitalizations, and sometimes even worse than no insurance at all. Probably due to the restrictions of Medicaid coverage, where doctors cannot prescribe the right drugs or use the right diagnostic tests. These are the details. I'm making Medicaid a transition to private insurance. I'm treating Medicaid like welfare reform treated welfare. It's a bridge program to get people having the same medical care that everyone else has. Why would you want a substandard, separate system just because you're poor? There's not a single member of Congress that would accept Medicaid for their family. I guarantee that. What I'm saying is provide private insurance options, establish and put some of the money that the federal government gives into seed funding HSAs for Medicaid enrollees, giving them actually not only HSA power, but in assets that they actually are motivated to protect and having thresholds to do that. And then number six is strategically enhancing the supply of medical care while ensuring innovation. We talk about in the news how primary care doctors there's going to be a shortage. No one mentions that the bigger shortage is in the specialists. Much bigger shortage of surgeons and other specialists coming down the road than primary care. And the fact is that probably everybody here knows that there's no serious disease today that is managed by a general doctor. An internist or a family physician does not manage seriously ill people. Everything is specialty based and that's appropriate. Those are the doctors that understand the medical technology and drugs needed. Speaking of drugs, and this is obviously a concern and also something that the Democratic candidates have voiced up on uh, about what to do about expensive drugs. Why would drugs be so expensive in the US? Well, look at the graph here. The cost of the US to establish a new drug is now $2.5 billion. Six times or more what it cost 10 years ago. And the duration from initiation to time to market is now 14 years. These things are not free. Capping their prices will only do one thing. We know what happens when you cap prices. This is Econ 101, and I'm not an economist. You cap prices, you reduce the availability of the drug. There's something else even more disturbing about the bureaucracy in the FDA. The average length of time to get a generic drug to market. Generic drugs do not have anything novel. There's no new active substance, it's called, in a generic drug. The average length of time in this bureaucratic nightmare we have is 42 months for a generic. That's almost four years, three and a half years, for something that isn't even new. And generics represent a key to getting drug costs down. Medical technology is also something that is tied up in knots in the FDA. And I'm just going to look at the right two columns here to show you that the experience of entrepreneurs in Europe is that Europe is the place to go to develop and get approval for new medical devices. That is not typically a place we think of as having less red tape than the United States. We also know that in the med tech sector, there has been a response to the taxation of Obamacare. This is anecdotal, just a list of things 
but many, many companies have stopped hiring, but also moved offshore with their R&D development, with their new plants, because directly of the massive taxes on medical technology. And in fact, we see another harmful tax in this graph. This is the tax on prescription drugs that the Obamacare law put on companies. Who do you think pays that tax? It's in the price of the drug. I mean, does anyone not understand that? The spending on drugs, by the way, where we're wringing our hands about this every day now, look what was happening in the spending on drugs. This is on invoice and actually net spending. From 2006 till the passage of Obamacare, things were pretty much under control. This is what happened since Obamacare. Now, one of the reasons is this consolidation going on in healthcare. I'm going to finish up with a couple of slides here. I just want to show this very striking chart of hospital mergers. Look what happened since Obamacare came in. A doubling, historically unprecedented merger activity among doctors and hospitals. Why is that bad? Because when these the sectors in, in healthcare merge, whether it's hospitals, physician groups, insurers, the prices go way up. Choices go down, but the prices go way up. Just physician group takeovers alone increase expenditures by 10 to 20% and specialists by 34%. This is the data. This is not an opinion. These are harmful to consumers. These are the details of how to enhance the supply. Stimulate private retail clinics, liberalize the practice constraints of what I call low-level primary care. You don't have to be an MD to take somebody's blood pressure or to, make, to see if they had the flu. I'm sorry, and I'm a doctor, so I feel good about saying that. Um, institute national physician licensing. Get rid of the artificial barriers. The medical societies have put in place constraints on the numbers of doctors trained, both from medical school as well as in specialist positions. I know I ran neuroradiology program here at Stanford for more than 15 years. This is counterproductive, it's harmful to consumers, and it's a self-fulfilling uh, thing here. It's, a, it's really inappropriate, and nobody even knows about it outside of the medical field. And streamline FDA bureaucracy and implement some strategic reforms to immigration. We want highly skilled people to stay in the United States, particularly if they were trained in our universities, even if they're not citizens yet. What do these things do? Well, this is a super conservative estimate of how much money is saved. Almost $3 trillion in savings over the decade from private expenditures and $1.5 trillion in government expenditures. And I want to finish up with these three slides here. The grand irony of Obamacare. We are centralizing medical care, whereas the rest of the world, where they have experience, decades of experience with government-run health care, are privatizing. European governments are all not only facilitating access to private care, they're paying with their tax dollars for their citizens to get care in private clinics in their countries and in sometimes, some cases, over borders in other countries because their nationalized systems don't function. Private insurance is growing like crazy. This is the NHS data. I'm not going to go through all this, but just to say one specific statistic here that is incredible to me. 18% of cancer patients in England who have the diagnosis of cancer urgent treatment, 
18% of them wait more than two months for the first treatment. In the US, if you wait more than a week for something, you're going somewhere else. In Sweden, the mother of all welfare states, they have been privatizing their system for years. And despite the fact that a Swedish family of four pays $20,000 a year in taxes for their health care system, 600,000 of them now buy private insurance because their system doesn't function. Obamacare accelerates the move in many ways toward a two-tiered health system. I'll finish with this slide. It's one of the many things that I loved about Milton Friedman's sayings. One of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than the results. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.